I'm uh, Jonathan Coleman. I want to welcome you all here today and then those who are following us uh, through our, our live stream. Uh, this past Wednesday, we began the Lenten journey on Ash Wednesday, and uh, we placed those uh, ashes upon our forehead uh, to begin our Lenten walk. Uh, Pastor Linda Troy led us in a beautiful sermon to posture ourselves in humility and repentance and a desire to draw near to God in holy living. Today's the first Sunday of Lent, and we're beginning a series focused on the Psalms as a guide to deeper prayer and communion with God. The Psalms teach us how to approach God. And as they sang up here, you could... I felt my petitions going up through those words it was as if I was joining them and proclaiming those words as we sang that psalm. And it meets us in very, very unique situations and not so unique situations. And it develops a deep and personal relationship with God. Psalms are utilized for wisdom and prayer and lament, coronations, liturgies, hymns, prophecy, confession, praise, and thanksgiving. The Psalms are divided up into five books, and they were written by various people over a period, period of several centuries. The value of the Psalms is that they enable us, like I said, to channel our emotions, both negative and positive. The Psalms help us to express praise and pain as they help us to receive God's word of comfort and hope and challenge. They've been called the hymn book of the Old Testament because it's clear many were meant to be sung in worship just like we had seen in a couple of songs, one fantastically written by Eric. You'll find musical notations. I don't know if you grab that in, in whether you're looking at it online or in your Bible. It says, for a song for the director of music. They're thousands of years old, but they still hold true in our experience in the now. The Psalms are a gift from God for the people of God. So let's begin. Psalm begins with a very important word. This Psalm, the first one, very important word in our life, and that word is happy. Happy. It begins with a question for you Are you happy? It's a very important question, isn't it? It's the core of the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As an American, we are given the first two, life and liberty. We have that freedom. But the third thing has to be pursued or chased. And the Bible has an interchangeable word with happy, and it's the word blessed. Jesus used it many times in the Sermon on the Mount, and that Greek word is makareos, which means happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, he said. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are the merciful. Happy are the pure in heart. Clearly, happiness is a state that we can enter into, and it has to be. In 1988, I remember a song came out when I was in high school. It was an acapella song titled, Don't Worry, Be Happy. 
It was the number one acapella song, first one ever, and it was number one for two weeks. And we don't like our family, our friends, our children to be sad. We want people around us to be happy. We get to turn the frown upside down. We want to see that happiness in others and especially within ourselves. And it's cool that the very first word to begin these 150 psalms is the word happy. God wants you to be blessed as daughters and sons, as beloved with happiness. The psalm tells us how to approach our todays and our tomorrows. Let's delight in this psalm together. And however you want to grab this up, these words, as, they're, as I read them out loud, if you want to close your eyes or look at them up on the screen or tune in, I know you're tuning in through live streaming, just look at it or pray it. Blessed, happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Which yields his fruit in season. Whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked. They are like chaff. The wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over. The way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This first psalm is a psalm of wisdom. And it points to the fact that there are two roads to take. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. It begins with a negative. What the blessed one does not do. They don't sit in the company of mockers. They don't stand in the way that sinners take. They don't walk like the wicked. And the writer is pointing to how those whom we associate with can have a profound effect or influence on our way of life and what we should avoid. And then he puts positive terms describing what the righteous do. They delight in the law of the Lord. They meditate upon it day and night whenever they can. And he uses two metaphors from nature to describe these ways. The righteous are like a tree planted right by a very active, filled stream. And they bloom fruit. You can count on that fruit from that tree exploding out from the branches. The leaves on that tree are always green and luscious and fresh. The righteous will get through those dry season, the psalmist says. But then he turns to the wicked and states that they're like chaff. Chaff is the outer shell or the husk that must be removed in order to get to the kernel, the precious kernel of grain. The chaff is light. It's threshed off, and it's easily blown by the wind. And you can see that imagery, that the wicked are easily blown by the dictates of the experience of the human journey. The writer of this psalm uses chaff as a symbol of a faithless life. 
They're very two different ways to live. In these days, the Psalms, when they were written, they had to walk miles to hear what was called the Torah, the law. And the writer brings forth this profound truth as it's stated and be heard out as it was proclaimed and read out loud. And then these words, these truths, as they sailed through the air from the reader, they would listen, meditate, and ponder those words. It was like closing the eyes and chewing into the most delicious food and tasting all of the different spices and seasoning. And they would go, mmm, <laughs> as they would taste and see that the Lord is good through the reading of the law. They delighted in that goodness. And the same goes for God's word that we have unlimited access to, my friends. Okay, so why meditate on God's word? Why does the psalmist instruct us to delight in God's word and meditate on, meditate on it day and night? I want to give you four reasons. First of all, God's word will strengthen you. It will strengthen your faith. It will strengthen you as you navigate life. God's word always fortifies our days. Acts 20 says, And now I entrust you to God and his care and to his wonderful words that are able to build up your faith and give you all the inheritance of those who are set apart for himself. You see, there's numerous ways in which we get our faith built up. Life groups, bands, Christian music, Bible study, worship, hopefully a sermon will build up our faith. All of those will boost. But there's nothing like reading and going to the source found in the Holy Scriptures. Diving directly into God's Word and swimming and allowing it to help navigate and strengthen your faith. Reading it and then pondering it and meditating on it will reinforce the fort of our lives. And fortify us and make us strong in critical times and challenges. The second is God's word, meditating on it, guides your decisions. God promises to help us in our decision-making processes. To give his wisdom if we follow it. Some of, our, some of the greatest decision makers in the, in the country relied upon and, and the Bible was primary in their life. Presidents, for example, George Washington, our founding father, a dude with a gray wig, and he allowed this Bible to be the best gift. And he said this, it is the best gift that was given to us. And without it, we could not know right from wrong. The Bible gives us orientation to God's ways. As Abraham Lincoln said, the Bible, oh, I just, I just misquoted each of them. Wait a minute. George Washington said, it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Abraham Lincoln said, the Bible is the best gift God has given to us. Without it, we could not know right from wrong. You could Google and fact check me on that. <laughs> you see, the Bible gives us orientation, my friends. The Bible is a baseline for processing the drama that each day may bring. It challenges our motivations. It gives us deep wisdom. 
that we can take and function as people who are created in the image of God, as people who were proclaimed or spoken into being by the spiritual divine. God promises also to order our steps in the word and guide each step specifically so we know where to take the next faithful step in our decision making. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That light is right there, knowing where to place the foot in the steps of our life. Number three, it will enhance your life. That's the third thing. This past week I read the scripture uh, in our Bible reading plan of Psalm 119, and I found uh, some serious enhancement. It was Tuesday morning, and I was reading... And I, I dug into it, and I was just bummed out because it snowed again. And I was just so, oh, down. I get that seasonal, seasonable, seasonal blues sometimes. I don't know if you get that. But I started digging into it. And as I read these 72 verses, which was in that Bible reading plan, I found that it, it, it cleared away those burdens. It's a snowblower. And I lifted, it just lifted my heart up and up and up. It was a great morning, and it was antiseptic for the day and helped my happiness, my joy. Meditating on God's word can change the trajectory of your daily walk. Fourth, it'll change your heart. The fourth thing that that God's word does is transform the heart. When your heart is changed and lightened, your life and your steps are changed and lightened. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is full of living power. It's alive, living, active. It's it's not just some page-turning, leather-bound, informational book. It's alive and living. It can live in us. The the Hebrew writer goes on, it's sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into innermost desire. It exposes us for what we really are. And if you allow God, God's word to soak into your life, it'll cut stuff from your heart. It'll help prune and shape in that formation and help you to live life to the fullest within that heart surgery. It purifies the desires of your heart. And it cleanses, as the psalmist says, cleanses my heart with hyssop, washes. So how do we meditate on God's word? It's clear if we want to have a blessed life, we need to learn how to meditate. And there's no greater time than during the season of Lent. First of all, we have to read it. We have unlimited access to the Bible in so many ways. Just a few hundred years, like I said, the Bible, there, there, there might have been only one or two Bibles maybe when this church was founded. And people would walk in and they would listen to the word as it was proclaimed, to hear it. And they allowed that word to nourish their lives. Wesley, when he read Martin Luther's commentary, Romans was proclaimed and it made his heart strangely warm. In seconds, think about our technology. We can access so many Bibles differently, different translations and interpretations. You can just pull it out right now. Type into your Google search engine, Psalm 119, and within two seconds you get all 176 verses, and you can dig and dive right in, anytime, anywhere. I had an old farmer named Johnny Wells, 
God rest his soul. He, he told me this one time. He, thought, he goes, I thought about this preacher. He said, having a Bible and not reading it is like using a tractor for a yard ornament. And I'm like, Johnny, that's, a, that's awesome. He's so right. It can't just sit there on, on the table or within our phone and just remain dormant and dusty. It has to be read. We don't have to walk three miles to, to the sanctuary to hear God's word read out. So we can receive the power of his word while waiting in the, the waiting room of our dentist. Or on our work break. Or in a waiting line at Kroger. People won't know what you're doing and you don't, shouldn't care. You're digging into the word no matter where you're at. And we have to read it. And then we have to receive the word that is read. We have to open up our lives and accept that word. James writes in one, uh, chapter 1, verse 21, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. I must receive God's word if I'm going to be blessed by it and have an open reception to it and welcome that word into my life. Sometimes we come to the scriptures and We just don't like what it says, but we have to receive it because it's it's medicine for us, for the soul. You know, Lee Strobel was an agnostic reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He thought he could just disprove the scriptures. He thought that they were ridiculous and not true, just all made up. And he began to investigate the truth and the reality behind the scriptures. And it led him to realize that the Bible was indeed true. And it ended up converting him, coming to faith in Christ. And he he actually wrote a book called Case for Christ, which is fantastic. You see, he dug in and he found it. And he received it. The key word James uses here is humbly. We have to have the right attitude. We need to be teachable and yielded. Followership is just as vital as leadership. And we have to allow the the word of God in our followership as we humbly take what it says into our lives and be transformed by it. You see, the Bible can help quiet the ego. And when we receive God's teaching in a humble posture... It helps us lead ourselves, and I believe it leads others. Bradley Owens is, a, is an expert on training management. He writes this about being humble and receiving. He said, leaders of all ranks view admitting mistakes, spotlighting follower strengths, and modeling teachability as being the core of humble leadership. And they view these three behaviors as being powerful predictors of their own, as well as the organization's growth. I like that. If you want to be blessed by the Bible, humble yourself and allow the word that is written be inserted in your heart, mind, and soul. Next, we need to reflect. Reflect on the word of God. James 1.23 says, Those who listen to the word but do not do what it says are like people who look at their faces in a mirror and after looking at themselves, they go away and immediately forget what they look like. 
James uses a pretty startling illustration here, folks. It's not... It's, it's really weird. He's like, can you imagine looking at yourself and seeing yourself in the mirror and then not being able to pick yourself out of a police lineup? It's, it's fascinating. And James gives us a wonderful image of a mirror held before us, which enables us to see who we are in the light of God's love. And then he cautions us after looking at ourselves that in the mirror that we should not go out into the world and forget what we are as Christians and who we are and what we're supposed to look like in our behavior, in our thoughts, and in our actions. We are to be engaged with the world, but, we're, we're, but we are supposed to reflect our true Christian selves instead of the world's persona. Reflecting on the word helps us recognize and employ our good self in our actions and in our attitudes. The Bible wants and God wants to desire or to form us into our best selves. Have you ever seen yourself in the Bible? It's fascinating, isn't it? Book of Hebrews says God's word detects the thoughts and tents and motives and the desires of the heart. And many times... We just don't take time to reflect on what we read, or or maybe we just don't take time to uh, give it application to our situation or our thoughts and our behaviors. Have you ever had a hallelujah ouch? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you open up God's word, and you read it, and you go, hallelujah, and then you're like, oh, ouch. I love it. I think Beth Moore Moore coined that. Hallelujah, ouches. We reflect on scripture and we ask the question, what does this mean for my life? And what does this mean for my change and my transformation? And a lot of times we go, hallelujah, I love that reading, but ouch, I know that I have to improve my standards of living. So we ponder it, we think about it, we pray about it, we journal it, and then we reflect. And then we remember James 125 says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed. Sometimes I get so spaced out and distracted reading my Bible reading plan, and it's because of this little sucker. I'll see a notification pop up, and then another one, and then I know that I just got to take it and put it over on a kitchen table and go back and just get my leather-bound book and remember what I'm reading. You see, we, we have to put down all distractions and re-read it and re-read it. This little gadget can interfere with the pursuit of happiness and being blessed. Trust me, I know it. And I just did it this week. Put it down and get on the Bible, the leather bound. God constantly tells us in his word, remember my words, remember my teachings, my daughters and my sons. Lastly, we need to respond to the word. God's word is not left on the coffee table. We become living Bibles by responding to it. it, it it's not enough to remember, we have to put it into action. Act on it and live it and practice it. Be a doer of the word, as James writes. Uh, James, he, he says it right there. Be not hearers who forget, but be doers who act on it. I don't know if you know the story. 
of, of the Cadbury chocolates. I love Cadbury chocolates. Those chocolate Easter eggs are so precious. And I love the balking bunny. It's been around for so many years. And he lays a Cadbury egg. I don't know if you know this, but the Cadburys were devout Christians. They were doers of the word. They were wonderful, practicing Quakers. They built their company around Jesus' golden rule. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. And that, and that, that sums up the law, as Jesus says, and all the prophets in Matthew seven twelve. So when they began their chocolate-making empire in the 1800s in Victorian England, where most factories were very, very dangerous, people were overworked and worked in gruesome conditions, the Cadburys chose to build their factory to make it safe and comfortable for the, for the workers just as much as possible. Around the factory, they built houses and villages, vegetable plots, and even sports fields. The Cadburys even set up workers' retirement and pension systems, something that was unheard of for factory workers in that time. John Cadbury was a social activist as well who led campaigns against slavery and child labor. The Cadburys could have been like the typical wealthy class of their time, enjoying all these, these luxuries gained from their wealth, but they poured it back into her, their employees. Why? What motivated them to work for this justice? What motivated them to work for this equality? The word of God, being a doer of the word of God. And these principles found in God's word were conveyed out, and it made change happen, as we know of in today, in the way we work. Multiple generations of Cadburys built their businesses around Christian principles. You see, the Psalms, my friends, are a way of wisdom, a path of blessing for our Lenten walk. I really dig also Psalm 2. There's evidence that Psalm 1 and 2 were meant to be read together. And, and Psalm 2 is just this, it's this messianic song, psalm about God's reign. And I believe the coronation of claiming Jesus as the Messiah. And together they provide a lens and a window through which you're invited to make this journey of reading and meditating on God's word. All the rest of the 148 psalms for us that we'll navigate together. You see... Psalm 2 is about having the Messiah, Jesus Christ, sit on the throne of your heart and rule and reign with peace and justice. Also, Psalm 2 is about countering the bullying world that tries to intimidate us into hiding or fleeing. When we look around us, we can become overwhelmed by this secular world, can't we? With the politics, the cultures, the, the funky things that are going on. But to counter that intimidation... We need a new perspective every day, and we can find that in the Psalms. So I want to ask you the same question I asked you at the beginning of this sermon. Are you happy? Are you happy? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to see the reign of God on the throne of your heart and on your life? I want to challenge you today to start this Lenten journey pursuing in happy, happiness by immersing yourself into these incredible songs 
to apply them to your, to your life, to pray them, to read them, to receive them, reflect them, remember them, and respond to them. In the 40 days, you'll begin to store up treasure, and these psalms will fill your heart and your soul and your life to where they come off your lips, and they're prayers for you in the circumstances that sometimes we walk in in difficult times and also the joys that we experience. Remember, the words that this psalm proclaims, we can become trees planted by streams of water which yields fruit in seasons and whose leaves, leaves do not wither and we will prosper. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we give thanks for this Lenten journey. It's cool to be in community together, as the psalm says. How wonderful it was to come into your house. How wonderful your word is. As we apply it to our lives in the coming days, God, may it transform and live outwardly from us. We thank you for this time, and we thank you that you desire to make us happy. And it's in you that we experience this through the ministry of the Psalms and your word and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.